Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to today's episode. This week, we're going in focus, where we explore more advanced wealth planning topics. Today, we will discuss taxation of supplemental needs trust. Before we get started today, I just want to say that on behalf of Shankman Wealth Management, I want to express our support and solidarity with the people of Israel during this difficult time. Our prayers and hearts are with the families of the victims, hostages, and the soldiers on the front lines battling the Hamas terrorists. May this war be one step closer to a lasting peace in the region. Today's show will provide an overview of income, gift, and estate taxation of both which first and third party supplemental needs trusts. Listeners will learn about which supplemental needs trusts can be treated as qualified disability trusts and what that means for income tax purposes. Today, we're privileged to hear from Amy O'Hara, a partner at Littman Crooks based in Westchester, New York. By way of background, Amy focuses her practice on special needs planning, trusts, estates, elder law, and personal injury settlement consulting. She's a sought-out lecturer and frequently speaks to advocacy organizations on the importance of proper planning for families of children with special needs. She regularly publishes articles relating to elder law, estate, and special needs planning. Amy is certified as an elder law attorney by the National Elder Law Foundation and is a member of the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. She's a treasurer of the Board of Directors of the Special Needs Alliance and is the president of the Board of Directors of Westchester Disabled on the Move. Today, Amy will be speaking on taxation of supplemental needs trust. And with that introduction, I will now turn the program over to Amy. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. Um, I um, I appreciate it and, and to come back here. So um, I'm going to get right uh, started because I have a lot to cover in, uh, in a half an hour here. The there we go. So what's in a name? Um, and, you know, Jonathan, I just noticed said, you know, because I said taxation of special needs trust, and he used the word supplemental needs trust, but and those terms are, are used interchangeably. So there are two types of special needs trusts that we really look at self-settled or first party, or sometimes um, in my world, we refer to them as D4A trusts and third party trusts. And special needs trusts are also referred to as supplemental needs trusts. The distinction between first and third party is actually the source of funds. Um, trusts for individuals on means-tested government benefits, including supplemental security income and Medicaid, which are the two most common types of means-tested benefits. Um, these types of trusts must be the special or supplemental um, in order to maintain eligibility for these government benefit programs. Um, those terms, supplemental and special, do not need to be in the title of the, of the trust, but it's actually how the trust is actually written um, is what's important. Um, just a summary of a first-party supplemental needs trust, we have a federal statute, um, 42 USC 1396 PD4A, and that's where sometimes the D4A reference comes from, um, which um, governs these types of trusts. There is self-settled trust where the beneficiary can actually create their trust on their own, 
Um, but sometimes they lack the capacity to be able to do that on their own. So then um, the law allows their parent, grandparent, guardian, or the court to be able to step in the shoes of the beneficiary to create the trust on their on the beneficiary's behalf. They're funded with the beneficiary's own assets. Sometimes um, they may become disabled later in life. Um, and then we need to move maybe through a, a terrible automobile accident um, and where they, you know, need around the clock 24-7 care. And we may, and if they're under 65, we can move their own assets into the trust. Sometimes, um, you know, a grandparent or if a parent never did their estate planning properly, um, the beneficiary um, may get a, um, an outright inheritance. Um, I work with trusts um, with personal injury bar where there's medical malpractice settlements or birth injury settlements um, that go into these types of trusts. And the child is quite usually significantly disabled um, needing that Medicaid and sometimes around the clock care. And another common funding of this type of trust is child support, because in the eyes of the um, gov government benefits, um, child support is actually an asset of, of the beneficiary. As I just mentioned, the beneficiary must be under the age of 65 when the trust is established and funded. The trust must be irrevocable. And all the assets in the trust are exempt and not countable as the beneficiary's own assets, so it allows them to qualify for SSI and Medicaid. Distributions are for the beneficiary's sole benefit. Now, distributions can be made to third parties, but they're for the, the benefit of, of the beneficiary. At the end, with the first party trust, at the end of the beneficiary's lifetime, to the extent that they used Medicaid, there is a payback for all the Medicaid that's been paid on the beneficiary's behalf through their entire lifetime. Um, and then the remainder goes to the beneficiary's estate. So when we're looking at first party trust, remember we're dealing with a self-settled trust here. Um, these um, are typically um, taxed as grantor trusts. A grantor trust is a trust whose existence is ignored for income tax purposes. Meaning if the trust has income, it is taxed as if the beneficiary had received the income directly, even if no income was distributed to the beneficiary, but rather remains in the trust. And um, first party trusts are almost always grantor trusts for tax purposes. And so again, that means that the trust incomes, deductions, credits are reported on the beneficiary's personal income tax return. Um, this is helpful often because the tax rates are generally higher um, than individual, well, they are higher um, than individual tax rates. They're, they're um, compressed. And especially for beneficiaries with disabilities with little to no income. So they virtually may be at the lowest um, tax rate. Um, and so it's better to have that tax at the beneficiary's rate. Um, first party special needs trusts are not qualified disability trusts, which I'm going to talk about when we get to the third party trust. Um, the First, um, again, these are self-settled trusts. Um, they're, they're established by the beneficiary. Distributions are made for the beneficiary's benefit. And at the end of the beneficiary's life, um, the, the, any assets remaining are payable to the beneficiary's estate. Um, and as a result, these trusts are includable in the beneficiary's gross estate for estate tax purposes. Dealing with much higher estate tax thresholds right now, it rarely becomes an issue. Um, where we're dealing with a taxable um, estate for a beneficiary. Um, typically, they're in um, situations where 
the beneficiary did have that medical malpractice or a, like you know a type of birth injury case where there's millions of dollars in these trusts. Um, the there is a step up in basis because because the assets are includable um, in the beneficiary's estate. Um, there's a step up in basis of the trust assets and Medicaid to the extent there is that Medicaid lien that has to be paid. Um, it, it's a deduction on the estate tax return. <coughs> Excuse me. So third-party supplemental needs trusts. And so I'm going to spend a little bit more time um, on, on this um, because there's lots of planning that we, that goes into how we want to structure these third-party trusts. But there is no federal statute on these types of trusts. There's some state statutes. New York has a, um, a statute um, under our state's powers and trust law that could govern both first party and third party. Um, but the idea with these trusts is they're established by a third party. They're not established by the beneficiary. It's a common estate planning tool um, that I work with my families um, where we're anticipating um, one of their children to have lifelong needs that need to rely on government entitlement programs. This is the common type of trust that we'll use so that they can maintain eligibility and not really be disinherited um, um, by leaving assets to other children to quote unquote do the right thing, which, you know, if there's any estate planners here on the on the call, you, we see what happens um, from time when that happens. So this is a discretionary trust. We do not have um, a distribution standard based upon a health, education, maintenance, and support. Um, it's important not to give the beneficiary with disabilities any crummy any crummy, any crummy powers for rights of withdrawal. I'll talk about that um, in a little bit. Similar to the first party trust, the assets are exempt and not countable to the beneficiary. Um, there you can continue eligible ability for Medicaid and SSI. There's no 65 age requirement. The beneficiary could be at any age when the trust is established and funded. And um, wonderful planning is that there's no Medicaid payback here. Um, we could have this type of trust structure, and when the beneficiary passes away, to the extent assets are remaining in the trust, there is no Medicaid payback. Um, the, the client chooses who the remaining beneficiaries are, um, and whether that's charity, the beneficiaries, if they have children of their own, um, if it's other siblings. Um, so the, the grantor or the settler or the creator of the trust is in control of that. So um, sometimes a, a I'll talk to practitioners and you know and uh, or accountants, and they'll see on the left side of a of a 1041, um, you know, a box that says you know you could check as a qualified disability trust. Well, what is a qualified disability trust? Um, basically, it allows the trust, a third party SNT, to receive a personal exemption, which in 2023 the personal exemption is forty seven hundred dollars. So that allows um, the first $4,700 of income um, to not be taxed um, in the trust. And you may say, well, but wait, I thought the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 eliminated personal exemptions through 2025. It did, except for qualified disability trusts. Um, you'll find the law um, in um, of qualified disability trusts in Internal Revenue Code um, 642B2C, um, a grantor trust cannot be a qualified disability trust. Um, in order for a qualified, for, and I call it a QDIST for short, because um, it's a mouthful. Um, so the statutory 
requirements for the trust needs to meet these requirements in order to be able to get that um, personal exemption um, on the tax return for the trust. The third party ST must be irrevocable. It must be for the sole benefit of the beneficiary with disabilities. Um, we can't have other beneficiaries within the trust. Um, the beneficiary must be under age 65 when the trust is funded. And you just said, wait a minute, Amy, um, you just said there is no age requirement for third party trust. That is true, except if you want to get the qualified disability trust status, the beneficiary does um, need to be under the age of 65 at the time of establishment. And the beneficiary must have a strict um, um, definition of their disability as defined under the SSI and Social Security Disability programs. Um, now, when we're doing planning, um, when I'm doing planning for clients, um, you know, we have a different, we have different options when we're drafting these trusts. Um, we could draft them as testamentary. That means they're created under a will. They don't get really established until the testator passes away and we go through probate. And depending on what state you're in, you know, you, they, the, the trustee who's named under the will for the trust gets letters of trusteeship, and that gives them the authority to be able to act. Um, and then we have inter vivos trusts, um, which are created during lifetime. Um, and these trusts um, can be irrevocable or revocable. Um, I will say I'm not a big fan of testamentary supplemental needs trusts. Um, often we're dealing with trusts that are in um, place for the beneficiary's lifetime, um, which could be many, many years. And we want to have the flexibility to be able to change the trust or change the trustees, which sometimes can be done through the court, um, but it could take several weeks or if not a couple months, if not longer, to be able to even just change a trustee. Um, and whereas if it's an inter vivos trust, we could do it in a day without having to the, go to the court and get court approval. And sometimes the court wants to appoint a guardian ad litem. It just takes what should be a simple process much longer um, if we're dealing with a testamentary ST under a will. Um, and so I would say the common planning um, for by special needs attorneys is to do an actual trust agreement, a supplemental needs trust agreement that goes into effect now during lifetime. And then the question is, do we make that trust revocable or irrevocable? Um, in, in my practice, we tend to, when I'm working with um, a parents as clients and they have a child, whether the, it's an adult child or a younger child, um, at, you know, with disabilities that we're anticipating to be lifelong significant disabilities and a supplemental needs trust is appropriate, I tend to prepare revocable trusts. Um, and that's revocable to the grantor, mom or dad, or sometimes both of them. Um, that allows us to have the flexibility to amend the trust, for them to be the trustee, um, to, you know, um, just make changes over the years. Um, my, I, I, and I will do irrevocable trusts um, if a family comes to me and we're doing estate tax planning um, or we have other um, family members that want to make a significant contribution to the trust, um, not necessarily the grantor, mom or dad, um, will make the trust irrevocable. And, and so when we're looking at um, an irrevocable, um, I'm just going to 
talk a minute, I'm going to focus first on the irrevocable trust. Um, and we're looking at the tax. So, you know, the, the assets are in the trust. And to the extent that there's earnings, there's interest and dividends earned within the trust. Um, there has to be tax that's paid. Um, if it's a testamentary trust, we can, um, if the beneficiary is under 65, when the trust is established, um, apply the um, qual acutist status um, to, to enable to get that $4,700 personal exemption. With an inter vivos um, um, irrevocable trust, it could either be drafted as a qualified disability trust or a grantor trust. And that's all dependent on um, the planning and, and what um, language we put in the trust to whether maybe we want it to be a grantor trust so that if, if we are doing estate tax planning um, it and um, we want to preserve, if we want to make a significant contribution to the trust and preserve the assets within the trust and have the grantor be able to pay the income tax on it, um, it you know, that's, the, that's the strategy of, of doing that. And, you know, Sometimes that makes a lot more sense to to give a trust grantor status, grantor trust status than to give it a um, CUDA status. And in terms of estate and gift tax planning, um, generally all the same planning benefits as your typical irrevocable trust. Um, you know, except I just want to point out here, it's important not to give a disabled beneficiary crummy withdrawal rights. Um, uh, um, and general powers of appointment. Um, with the crummy rights of withdrawal, I've had um, several instances, more so in the last couple of years than I've had in the past, where there are pretty well-drafted supplemental needs trust, or sometimes we're dealing with an insurance trust that has supplemental needs language in that. And when mom and dad go to apply for SSI um, for their child at the Social Security Administration, um, they'll ask, well, is your child a beneficiary of any trust? Oh, yes, we have this great, well-drafted trust right here. Um, they turn it over. It goes to a review department somewhere in the middle of America with um, that's a that we as attorneys can't even speak to them. And they say, nope, this trust is denied. This, this beneficiary has crummy rights of withdrawal. So we have to, you know, um, you know, fix these trusts, sometimes through decanting, um, and um, to eliminate those those crummy withdrawal rights for the beneficiary so that they could um, be eligible for the SSI. And for some of my higher net worth families, they say, you know what, we really don't need the SSI for our child. We don't need a check of $900 a month. Um, the issue comes though, depending on certain states, such as here in New York, where I practice, um, we need that SSI um, if they're getting into some type of of um, group home or residential placement um, that is administered through state agencies, they need that um, that resident um, to have the SSI or Social Security Disability um, eligibility because that's how they get extra funding to be able to pay for that. Um, also, with the general powers of appointment, um, the idea is that uh, you know a beneficiary can you know um, designate their creditors um, um, as as um, a beneficiary. And so Medicaid will say, you know what, you, you know, we, we may allow you to have this trust during lifetime, but at death, you know, we're going to take an interest in this because you have a general power of appointment. So just a general rule of thumb, it's, it's the same planning strategies usually as when we're doing high net worth, um, irrevocable trust gift planning. 
Um, but um, just these two points that not to include the crummy um, withdrawal rights or uh, general powers of appointment. Um, and dealing with the third party supplemental needs trust, um, if um, a re revocable trust, you know, and it's important to know that only the grantor or settler has the power to revoke, not the beneficiary. We don't give the beneficiary the power to revoke. Um, the grantor pays the income tax. Um, it's to the extent that the trust is funded um, during um, the grantor's lifetime, because sometimes we'll create these trusts and they're really not funded. Um, they're meant to be funded through an estate plan or through life insurance or retirement assets, um, excuse me, as of um, the grantor's death. Um, but to the extent that it is funded, it's an incomplete gift for the grantor. It's includable. The assets are includable in the grantor's estate at death. Um, but then there's a, a, a step up in basis of, of the trust assets. Um, I, I've already talked about the benefits of the flexibility of, of having revocable trust. It all depends, you know, there's no one size fits all. It, it all depends on the client's estate plan and, and the overall um, situation. Um, the trust does become irrevocable, similar to a revocable trust that we do for clients, um, uh, uh, you know, at the grantor's death. Um, I do have a few minutes now, so I just want to spend um, a couple minutes on income um, and, and how income in the trust and um, estates world in terms of taxable income is a bit different in than the special needs trust world or for purposes of benefits. So what is income? Benefits income is not the same as taxable income. The concept is often confused by Social Security and Medicaid workers. And so we find ourselves that we're often having to educate them about their own rules um, and, um, and the differences between taxable income um, for earnings or un unearned earnings or for tax purposes and then for benefits purposes. Um, so for taxable income for purposes of trust and a tax, the distribution of income is either a distribution directly to or for the benefit of the beneficiary. Whereas in benefits income, for purposes of needs-based benefits, income is cash or anything that can be used for food or shelter, unless if it's something that's exempt, which is a different topic for another day. So uh, so with supplemental needs trust, um, here's, a, here's a couple examples of when the benefits income is different than taxable income. So if we're dealing, if we have a trustee um, um, of a special needs trust, pays for the beneficiary's telephone bill directly from the trust, um, sets up automatic, pays cell phone bill each month. The beneficiary has received a benefit and therefore has received taxable income to the extent is made up of distributed net income. Um, DNI. In this example, the beneficiary did not receive any income for benefits purposes, however, because the beneficiary did not receive cash, food, or shelter. Right. Um, and then here's another example. Um, if the trustee of a special needs trust pays for the beneficiary's rent or food bill directly, um, so they set it up so that they pay the rent each month. Um, and the beneficiary receives SSI here in this example, supplemental security income. The beneficiary has received a benefit and therefore has received taxable income to the extent it's made up of DNI, okay, traditional um, tax, tax rule. But in this example, the beneficiary will lose one third of her SSI benefit 
um, because the payment of the food and shelter by the trust is considered income to the beneficiary. Um, and, and so, you know, I leave with this, this point that, um, you know, for, for purposes of, you know, the special needs trusts and um, a lot of the traditional um, tax rules apply. Um, but when we're when we factor in the benefits, um, there's you know um, different definitions of how um, income is defined and and um, just the way that benefits work. Um, so if there's ever any you know questions, um, just feel free to reach out to me. And I you know Jonathan, thank you so much for having me again today. I don't think we're we're doing questions, but you know feel free to um, send me an email. Um, or, you know, which you could um, find is aohara at lemoncrooks.com, or um, you can find me on my website. Thank you, Amy, for that informative talk on taxation and supplemental needs trust. One thing I say often in my articles, podcasts, and to clients is the importance of hiring professionals in various areas of financial planning to ensure that you're making the right decisions. When it comes to anything regarding planning for folks with disabilities, this is even more important. There are government benefit programs, and to ensure that your child or relative with special needs qualifies, you need to make sure your other planning is executed properly. Before doing anything, planning at all, the essential first step is to hire an attorney with expertise in this area. They will help make sure that you're taking the right steps to protect your loved ones. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, as I end every episode, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. And to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.